Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are on your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Oh, gosh, I'm still feeling that last song. Wasn't that a great song? Incredible reminder that there's no shadow he won't light up, no mountain he won't climb up coming after us. No matter where you feel like you are today, there's room at the table. And that's what we say. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at God's table. You will hear the invitation of God over and over again. You are welcome here. Thank you for coming. Um, Guys, party month is over. I know, that's the collective awe. It's over. If there's one thing we learned about Hope Brooklyn during party month, we know how to party, don't we? Yes. We party well. Uh, If you were not able to join us for some or all of the Sundays, sorry, you're out of luck. Maybe we'll do it next year. But there's also ways you can get involved um, because the party doesn't stop. However, I know what you're thinking. Okay, party month's over. Where are we going as a community? What's happening next? And we have an answer for you. We're about to enter into a season that we are calling Summer Sabbath. Can you say Summer Sabbath? Summer Sabbath, I love that alliteration, Summer Sabbath. Uh, Within the church calendar and the church tradition, there are seasons such as Lent or Advent, which are really, really important season. Uh, But there also are times in the calendar where there's nothing happening. And they call those times ordinary time. Now you might think that ordinary time is devalued in God's eyes and these these party months, these, these seasons of Lent and Advent are more important, but that's not true. All time is valued in God's eyes. We're just learning what these seasons mean, learning the significance of them. And so we're coming out of a month full of partying and activity, and we're entering into a season that we're calling Summer Sabbath. What this means, as it says up there, we're taking a break from programs, but not from people. We're taking a break from Hope Brooklyn, offering programs for everyone, but not from us as the community gathering together. Tables are our small group opportunities. Many of you are probably involved in a table and they are ending this May. Um, They've been going on all year. They're gonna be coming to a close. And in our process as a staff and as leadership, praying and discerning the vision God's giving us, we realize that tables are absolutely central to who we are and what he's inviting us into. And so to that end, behind the scenes, the staff has been working and will be working exceptionally hard Um, to revamp the whole tables ministry. So we're designing original content around tables. We're creating a robust training for leaders of tables. We're gonna have ongoing coaching for table leaders and a very new and sharpened vision of what a table is, which that will be coming out toward the middle and end of the summer. Um, There'll be tons of information. The short of it is, if there's any part of you that's like, oh, that would be cool to, to help facilitate a table. I won't even say to lead a table. Hold on to that and do it. Say yes. Say yes to God and we will teach you and train you on how to do the rest. We have about 130, 140 people who are part of the community cycle through on Sundays. I'd love to see 20, 20 tables, maybe 30 tables. I wanna see that many. I want the vision of Hope Brooklyn is that there's a table in every neighborhood where people are coming from, where we're working or around the hobbies that we have. But that's all to come. Summer Sabbath, there will be no tables. (laughs) Summer Sabbath, there will be no question X. There will be no prayer and worship. We're gonna be taking a break. We'll still be meeting on Sundays. 
Um, our justice team is going to have some film screenings. The youth is going to go on a retreat. But other than that, we are taking a break. So what does that mean? It means that community has to be formed the old-fashioned way. That's how you do it. You walk up and be like, hi, my, my name is Russell. What's your name? Oh, that's cool. It's a very pretty name. What, what, where do you live? Oh, I live near there too. Oh, do you want to you maybe get coffee sometime, hang out, get to know each other? Notice, this is the point that I pull out my phone to get information. Not before the first part of the conversation. So, that means it's on us to be the community, to get to know one another, to invite. And Hope Brooklyn is going to help. Don't worry. We're going to be a mediator of sorts. This is how it's going to work. At the what's next table, we're going to have something, a little sign-up sheet calling, I'm doing or what's happening, all right? So if there's something going on in the city, if there's a art show, if there's a film you wanna go see, if there's a picnic, I know Nathan is gonna do um, sort of like this, this summer where he wants to visit all the oldest bars in New York City, which sounds awesome. If you have stuff like that that you wanna do, you go to the what's next table and you fill out your name, your contact number, you fill out what the date of the event is, um, the time of it, all that. And then the rest of us, we can sort of go to the what's next table and see, okay, what's happening this week? And then we can get in contact with people, okay? Does that make sense? Yeah. Pretty simple, like a classifieds. Now, if you do wanna invite people to an event, do not rely on Hope Brooklyn. You still gotta do the hard work of being like, hey, spread the word, I'm doing this, all right? But if you need sort of like to, to wanna make it open to the rest of the community, the what's next table is there for you. And in that vein, we have our first event put on by a member of the community. And this will be the only time we announce it on Sunday. We're not gonna announce them all, but just as a way um, to let you know, which is called the Fortnite Fortnites. Oh, play on words. Led by Jay and Karen Billington. They are gonna be hosting, well, you can see it, a backyard party at the only real fort in NYC, Fort Hamilton, right? Fort Hamilton, yeah. Um, so there's their contact number. They went above and beyond creating this graphic, by the way. We are not expecting people to create graphics. Um, but contact Jay and Karen, see them. If you don't know them, they will be at the, uh, the What's Next table. We can get their information. They're gonna host a backyard sort of barbecue. I know Jay just finished his deck. Um, and there's gonna be food, there's gonna be music. It's gonna be an awesome time. So that's what we're gonna enter into, Summer Sabbath. And with that, let's pray and then jump into our text today. Jesus, we thank you for your kindness. You have been so, so kind to us. Kindness when we don't deserve it. Kindness when we think we do. You have been kind. I pray that our faith would be restored. Faith would be given. Faith not just that you exist, God, but that you care intimately and you are involved in our lives. Today, as we consider um, a tough section of scripture, Lord, would you open our hearts, would you soften them and open them to the kindness of your words, to what you're trying to teach us? It's in your name we pray, amen. If you're joining us for the first time, we are in a series called A Subversive Church. We've been looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians um, and, and sort of discerning how Paul, the tactics Paul is using to shape 
this new community of Jesus followers into the image of Jesus. And as I sort of hinted at the prayer, our passage today is a difficult text. Um, But let's just jump right into it. So we're reading 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2 through 16. That's how it reads. I praise you for remembering me in everything, for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. Now, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. If you turn to commentaries, (laughs) the first thing you're going to see is scholars say, we can clearly perceive the historical distance in this passage. It is evident. It's more evident than in other passages that we are in the 21st century reading a text that was written in the first century. As my favorite, or one of my favorite New Testament scholars, Richard Hayes writes, When reading this passage, we can neither understand it entirely nor accept it entirely. And we can't accept it entirely because of the former. We can neither understand it entirely. When you're reading Paul's argument, the best scholars admit that it is very convoluted and it's very confusing. Paul seemingly affirms patriarchy as an order of creation that it's part of the way of the things of the world. However, as scholars point out, his, his logic, his flow of thinking, his interpretation of text is questionable. For example, verse three, how he opens, he says, Christ is the head of every man, and the husband is the head of his wife, and God is the head of Christ. So that, that portion of the, hus- the, the man is the head of the woman, the husband is the head of the wife. He's pulling that from the second creation story. And I don't know if you know this, in Genesis, there are two creation stories. One which talks about um, the human who's created, Ha-Adam, Adam, the man, but it's actually in the Hebrew, it's better translated the human who's created and then falling into a sleep and God pulling a rib out from the human and creating woman. So he's pulling from that. But there is uh, another creation story set parallel with it in which in Genesis 1, we read that God made humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So there at least, there doesn't seem to be a distinction between who was created first and who was created for whose glory. It says God created both, both in God's image. 
And, and Paul would have known this, which is why it's interesting of, that he doesn't refer to this or at least nuance it. Moreover, he says that God is the head of Christ. And for those of us in the church world, in the church biz, we like to call that heresy. <laughs> now that's something that will develop later in the church tradition, but this, not to get too technical, is the heresy of subordinationism. It's the idea that uh, God the Father existed before God the Son, that there is actually hierarchy within God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which there's not. There was never a moment when the Father existed before the Son. There was never a moment when God existed before Christ. They are one. So maybe Paul means something else when he says that God is the head of Christ. Maybe he doesn't mean in terms of time in the same way that he suggests that man is the head of woman. But we don't know. He doesn't explain it. And then in verse 10, at the end of uh, his reasoning, he has this really fun statement that says, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels, which I read lots of different paragraphs and commentaries, and pretty much they all did this. We don't know what to do with that. They were reaching to some extra biblical literature, pulling out second Enoch. You know it's getting real when they're pulling out second Enoch. And they're like, we don't know exactly what's going on here. What we do know is that Paul is connecting tradition in the sense of the order of creation to the reason why women should wear veils when at public worship. And then after he does this, he says in verse 11, nevertheless, as if to say, I know I said all this, but nevertheless in the Lord, meaning in Jesus, woman is not independent of man or man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes from woman, but all things come from God. Paul is essentially saying, this is what it's like in the world. Therefore, this is why women wear veils. Nevertheless, in the Lord, you don't need to. Nevertheless, still do it. That's essentially his argument. And therefore, because it is so convoluted and confusing, we can neither understand it entirely nor accept it entirely. Now, here's what it doesn't mean. Because us, especially in the West in the 21st century, if it's not this, it has to be that, right? One or the other. We're not good with sitting in the middle. But just because we can't understand it or accept it entirely does not mean it still doesn't apply to us. Does not mean it's still not part of this story through which we see God. It does. People want to say it doesn't apply to us because it's culturally conditioned. But that's ridiculous because everything is culturally conditioned. That's actually, if you want to know, that's something that's really remarkable about Jesus, about our God. It's a very obvious statement, but it's super not obvious in its implications. God is personal. God is personal, which is to say our God is the God who enters into space and time and accepts people where they are, accepts cultures where they are, so as to enter in relationship and transform and redeem. But he's personal. And I say that's radical because if you consider other philosophies, other spiritualities, other faith traditions, it's not the same level of personality. Other, other deities can be impersonal, impersonal life forces, right, that are animating things. Other deities can be supra 
personal, pulling out the Latin on you, S-U-P-R-A, which means beyond personality. So um, they're, they're present in the world, but they're not present in a personal way. God, when we say God is personal, we mean God enters into space and time and meets people directly where they are. He accepts them on their level. He does not force them to come to him. He meets them right where they are. All texts are culturally conditioned. All of scripture is culturally conditioned. We today are culturally conditioned because the God who of, of all things has entered into our space and time and is meeting us where we are. So it still applies to us. It still has something to teach us. We just have to know what and how. The question for us today is one of contextualization. I'm pulling out some big words on you today, I apologize. Contextualization, you see the root in it, context. Contextualization is the question of how should the gospel enter into a place and time and quote unquote, take on the particulars of that place and time. For example, we meet in a public school as Christians. For us, it is contextualized. It, is, it does not compromise the witness of our story, of our God, to meet and worship him in a public school. Other faiths might say, no, you need to eat or eat. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking about right now. Where are those pancakes at? <laughs> you need to meet in a church, a religious place, which is purely set aside for religious purposes. Christianity, we don't say that. So that's, that's one way we've answered the question of contextualization. The gospel can enter into um, a public school. The question with contextualization is, what are the essentials of the good news? And what can change based upon the region and time period and people that God is reaching toward? Are veils essential to the hearing and receiving of God's love? Well, in the first century, Paul says yes. In the 21st, we clearly say no, as evidenced by this room here. They're not. And you see these types of questions all the time, all the time. Uh, in, in Islam, the Quran, for it to be divinely authoritative, it has to be written in Arabic. Arabic is the only language where it is divine. In Christianity, that's not the case. In fact, the way we contextualize is wherever we enter, the first thing we try to do is what? Translate. Translate this story, this book, into the native language. So it's not about the language, it's about the story, which is really interesting. But the question Paul is asking, the question we should be asking ourselves when we read this text is, what does it mean for us, the church, to reflect Jesus in our culture? Now, Paul has received some questions, evidenced by why he addresses us in his letter. He's received questions about whether women can forego their headdresses, forego their veils while in public worship. The way he frames it, it's evident that some already have. And so they're wondering, okay, well, is this okay? What do we do now? Uh, it's tragic because once again, it appears we can never escape it. There's always a problem about what women wear, isn't there? Paul is accused of misogyny in this text, which is totally false. It is true that he accepts the patriarchal framework of the world, but he redefines it within the church and he certainly doesn't allow for misogyny within the community. And we know this 
because if you were a first century reader coming to this text, you would be shocked, as we're shocked, right? We read this passage and we feel some offense, we feel some disgust, but for completely different reasons than if you were in the first century, how you would be offended or, or shocked or like, what is going on? And you can really see it revealed in this one verse right here. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. Did you catch the shock? Women are participating in worship. Now, I know that's not registering. You're like, duh. In the first century, friends, women had no value. We've talked about this in other, in other um, sermons before. The shock for a first century reader for someone in the Greco-Roman context, is that within this new group of people who worship this guy, Jesus, women are allowed to pray and prophesy, equal with men. That was insanely radical. A very shallow introduction to the view of women in the first century. Essentially, women were property. They were viewed as property. Hence, that was the practice of the bride price. So um, when, when there was an arranged marriage, when a man was gonna marry a woman, the man paid a bride price to the woman's father. So as to make it a fair transaction because she wasn't enough. Um, and then that allowed the marriage to go forward. So women were viewed as property. The sexual ethics of the first century world were incredibly uneven, unequal. Uh, basically the way it went is that if you were a man, you could have sex with anyone below your social status, um, both women and children actually. And, and that was totally deemed as okay. If you were a woman, though, you could only have sex with your husband. So again, this idea that women are property, they are purely viewed as procreation, as vehicles for procreation. And then lastly, in the first century, a woman's witness, their, their, their testimony was not credible, which is what makes the resurrection accounts so interesting. We've talked about this before. In, in um, the story of Jesus being raised from the dead, the first people to discover the empty tomb were women, which is often cited as uh, a reason why people think that the resurrection accounts are true. Because if um, you were making this up, if Jesus actually wasn't raised and you were trying to spread a lie in the first century, you would probably not have women be the first responders and the first evangelists who go back and tell the male disciples. Because It'd be like, we can't, we can't believe them. So, and those are just three ways that women are viewed um, as less than human. And yet what we see in the churches that worship Jesus, in the churches that Paul is establishing, is that there is a functional equality in men and women. Both are allowed to pray and to prophesy. And not just like in a way that humors others, but to pray and to prophesy and to listen, to hear, to receive it as the word of God, which is incredibly radical for that time. Paul writes in another letter, he goes, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, but all are you are one in Christ Jesus. He's pointing out something which a lot of people have found when you look at the spread of Christianity throughout the world. The, the idea toward liberation is immense in this story. 
this story, this God is all about entering into a world which is premised on power struggles and subjection and blowing it up, essentially. Blowing up the framework and saying, there will still be order, there will still be order and civilization, but it won't be based on fear and subjection anymore. It will be based on love, which we don't know how to do that. But it's, it's, it was often, and I read this in a, in a history book, um, a lot of times when you look at when, when the gospel spreads to new regions, um, um, and you look at people who are sort of like maligning it, it's often it developed this title as being a movement of women and slaves. That's what it was called, a movement of women and slaves. The reason being is because the first people who would come to the gospel, who would receive it, were those who were marginalized by society, those who were the outcasts. Because the gospel is not for those who have power. There's nothing good about what's being offered them. They're being offered a chance to lay down their power. But for those who don't have power, they are being offered invitation to a table where they do have agency. They do have power. They do have value. In the new humanity, there is equality among us. You don't cease to be male or female, but you do lose the terrible power dynamics inherent in these labels within a broken world. So there is no misogyny going on simply by the fact that men and women are both praying and prophesying to one another in the community. Then the question becomes, well, then why are veils such a big deal? In the first century culture, why does Paul still advocate for veils? Veils were a social signifier. To wear a veil was the signal to the world that you were a respectable woman and probably committed to a husband. As Anthony Thistleton writes, in Roman society, a hood was what a married woman was expected to wear in public as a mark of respectability. In the context of public worship, a married woman without a hood was, in effect, inviting men to size her up as a woman who might be willing to be propositioned and available. What's he saying? He's saying we enter into the new family, but we don't leave behind the old ways of thinking. And you can even see, see it in his, in his language. And I think he's being ironic. For a woman to enter into public worship without a hood is inviting men to size her up, right? We have the same language in our own world. What do we say? We say, well, why was she drunk, don't we? Well, we say, well, why was she wearing those clothes? She was asking for it. It's the same mindset as if what a woman, a woman does or does not do is purely based on how it affects men. One of the sad things about the whole Me Too movement, one of, from the church's perspective, is that the church should have been on the front lines. We should have been the first ones modeling to our societies that questions like, why was she drunk? Or why did she wear those clothes? are absolutely the wrong questions. We should have been the ones training our young boys about how we as Jesus followers view and relate to women, training them about true consent, better yet, true commitment, about new eyes that we get in the kingdom. But the sad thing is that we haven't, and actually, when the Me Too movement was spawned, there was an offshoot movement called Church Two, which detailed all the ways that this same level of abuse and misogyny was present in pockets of the church. 
And we can see it in our old ways of thinking. I remember um, in seminary, I had to uh, deliver a sermon on 2 Samuel 11, which is the chapter, if you're unfamiliar, of King David um, uh, having sex with Bathsheba. And Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah. And basically to cover up this, this uh, affair, uh, he has her husband killed in war. Um, and often, even in my Bible, when you look at what it's called, the subtitle, it's called the adultery of David and Bathsheba. But interestingly, when you read it in the Hebrew language, a lot of the verbs the author uses uh, are verbs used in military um, and, and, and battles as if to connote violence. And I wonder if what the author's trying to do is suggest that it wasn't the adultery of David and Bathsheba, it was the rape of Bathsheba. But even in my Bible, it's often said adultery as if to suggest that both Bathsheba and David entered into this relationship with full consent and full ownership. And I don't know if that's what the author's doing, but I, I do think there's a case to be made, as some scholars have said. See, the sad thing is that people view Scripture and view it as inherently misogynistic, as inherently um, belittling of, of women. But when you read it, that's so not true. The church is to be the place where we experience new family. Not victim shaming, not questions, well, why was she dressed that way? And certainly not violence among our own. Just this last week, Beth Moore, some of you may know that name. She's a very prominent uh, evangelical uh, teacher um, through, throughout much of the country. She came out with a blog post essentially detailing that throughout her entire career, the levels of misogyny and abuse and harassment she has faced by many male pastors. And then she has this line where um, she says at one point she finally came to the realization, it dawned on her, that scripture wasn't the reason for disregard and disrespect of woman. It was the excuse. The reason was sin. And if there's nothing else you get out of today, if you view scripture as inherently misogynistic, I would ask that we'd have further conversation because it's not. The reason why scripture can be used as a tool of violence is not scripture itself, it's sin. It's the reason why we call David and Bathsheba adultery instead of rape. But she goes on to say that when you look at scripture, when you look at the dignity by which Jesus treated women, it's fiercely beautiful and scandalous for the first century. Women were his followers. Paul had female leaders in the church. The first recorded word out of the resurrected Jesus' mouth is woman. And the first evangelist is that woman, Mary Magdalene. So the, the dignity, the equality of men and women in scripture is immense. But we've clouded that over. We have given in to sin. We've brought in our old ways of thinking. And so for that, the, before we can even begin to read scripture rightly, the first thing I have to ask is for forgiveness. If you were in here and you've ever been victim shamed or you've come to the church um, for comfort and instead received avoidance or dismissiveness or even violence, I don't even know how I can ask, but I do ask that you forgive us.
because that is not the new family that Jesus is creating. And not only that, but I can make you a promise that so long as I'm pastor of Hope Brooklyn, that we will have no tolerance for misogyny. We will, we will work to reveal where it is present and we will eradicate it. We will not dismiss your stories and there will not be unequal access to power. We will train our children together in this space to be the new family and what that looks like. We will comfort and discipline them together when their mindsets shift to the world's way of thinking. We will teach our sons this is true consent. And again, this is true commitment. And this is consent within commitment. And we will teach our daughters and we'll tell them you did nothing wrong. And don't let anyone tell you you did. We will begin here in this space to work out what it means to be the type of family that Paul is talking about and that Jesus established in his blood. But when we come back to the passage, we still have the question before us of why did Paul counsel women to wear veils, right? The reason being is that it's not misogyny, but it is a remarkable reason and it is a painful reason. Women were foregoing their headdresses and evidently in, in, this, in the Corinthian church. And they were doing so as a way to express their freedom. They were able to pray and prophesy and worship. They were taking it the next step and foregoing this social signifier. They were basking in that freedom that says there is no hierarchy between men and women. And we've already talked about the remarkable part is that men and women are equal participants in the first century church, in this worship. So Paul's explaining the conventions in the world. And then he says, but in the Lord, it's different. Women and men are not independent of one another. They both are the image of God. But then the painful part is he sort of says, though in the new family, things are different. The family still lives in the world that is not different. And so I'm asking you to not use your freedom to your own advantage. As Richard Hayes writes, Paul promulgates his teaching about head coverings for women not in order to restrict their participation in prayer and prophecy, but rather to enable them to perform these activities with dignity, avoiding distractions for people whose cultural sensibilities were formed by the social conventions of the ancient Mediterranean world. Paul is saying, because veils are viewed like this, to avoid distractions of people truly seeing Jesus and truly seeing the gospel, will you continue to wear them? It'd be like in our own day. We know that it doesn't matter what we wear. Jesus invites all to show up as they are to his table. And therefore, someone would be like, oh, okay, and showing up in a bathing suit, whether male or female, right? Be like, cool, that's fine. And for those of us who have maybe been in Christ a bit longer, we'd chuckle and they'd be like, all right, whatever, move on. For those of us who know nothing about the gospel, nothing about this community, they'd be like, what is going on here in this place? Um, it's sort of that same idea. The painful issue is not, well, Paul, why did you not address the men and tell them not to look at women this way? That the women are participating in worship at all in the first century context, not in ours, but in the first century context, that speaks for itself, that misogyny is not present and not allowed. The painful issue, it's as if the women are saying to Paul, well, it's easy for you, Paul, to say this, it's easy for you to advocate, to accept a patriarchal world. You benefit from it. 
Yes, in the church, we are a new family. We get it. But we're tasting freedom. We're tasting value, the sort that we don't get out there. And you're asking me to forego that for the sake of those who have abused me? You're asking me to live as less than free in this world, even though I know I'm entirely free in Christ? Is this the voice of one who has benefited from society, asking those who have been marginalized by society to not use Christ-given freedom to their advantage? Yes, that is exactly what's happening. Paul is asking women, though free in Christ, to, to not use that freedom to their advantage, even though they're the ones who have been hurt by it. I can almost imagine him saying, I can't, I can't even begin to fathom what this freedom must feel like. And every time we gather, we taste it over and over and over again. But I'm asking you to not love your freedom more than you love others. I'm asking you to not love your freedom more than you love others, even those others who have tried to take your freedom away. Not conceding to prejudice, not compromising to it, but neither using your newfound freedom and shoving it in faces either, but to still love them, to still offer them mercy as you've been offered mercy. You're like, how can he do that? How can Paul ask such a thing? Where, where is that coming from? There's another section in one of Paul's letters, the letter to the Philippians, where he's talking about his privilege, essentially. And he starts listing it out. And he goes, if anyone thinks they have confidence in the flesh, is how he puts it. But that basically means confidence in their standing in the world. I have more. He goes, I was born to the tribe of Benjamin. I was trained as a Pharisee, which is like the highest rank, one of the highest ranks in the Jewish world. I'm a Roman citizen. Like this dude is the most privileged in first century society. Well, maybe not the most, but he's very, very privileged in first century society. He's like, I have all these things going for me. And then he says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know him, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is a man who found a freedom in Jesus that was even more compelling and intoxicating than the privilege afforded him in his own world. This is a man who says, when you truly experience the love of God through Jesus, Everything else pales in comparison. I want nothing else. Even this, this privilege that I had, it's, it's nothing, it's garbage compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything else fades away. 
We talked about at the beginning, this is a, a passage on contextualization. How does the gospel enter into a place and time and take on the particulars of that culture? Well, I didn't read the first verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I did that for a reason, because that's sort of gonna be like the, the, the final punching statement. Before Paul launches into uh, the issue of, of veils and, and how to worship together, he has this line where he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. See, Paul's advocating, he's saying, when we're talking about the context of the first century world, how the gospel enters into place and time and puts on the particularities of that culture. It does so in weakness. It does so experiencing the freedom of Christ, but not using it to our advantage. And I'm asking you Corinthians, men and women, to imitate me because I imitate Jesus. We can talk about contextualization because there was an incarnation. The incarnation the absolute centerpiece of our entire story. God, perfect in every way, gives up his perfection and enters into time and space and puts on flesh. The perfect God, the one who is most privileged and most wronged by this world, surrenders his rightful freedom as Jesus goes to the cross though he doesn't deserve to be up there for the sake of love, for the sake of a world who continues to abuse him and put him down. Once again, Paul is returning the Corinthian people and asking us to return to the deafening silence of the cross. This is the God who for the sake of love gives up all things. So be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Jesus, who is life himself, submits to death so that those who are dying may truly live. Will you pray with me? Lord, We just ask that you would forgive us for the ways that we have not protected women in the church, for the ways that we have silenced their voices, for the ways that they've been abused by those who are supposed to be family, for the ways that we have not been on the front lines in society, teaching commitment, modeling commitment, modeling this freedom in you, Lord. Forgive us for the ways that we have made your story appear like something it's not. Forgive us. Lord, I pray for each person in this room. I pray that they would know since even right now, the reckless love of God. The God who continues to chase us down.
even when we turn the other way, even when we believe lies, even when we get it so terribly wrong, you do not leave us. Would we sense even right now that you are a personal God? You are not a God who is impersonal. You're not an impersonal life force. You're not a God who's suprapersonal beyond us. You are a God who has entered into space and time on our level with us. When we look at Jesus, we see the creator. We see the joy and the acceptance and the grace and the truth of God. We see the conviction of all the ways that we are wrong and that we have fallen short of what you intended for us. And we see also the outstretched hand of love saying, I am with you and I am for you. Be in relationship with me. That's all you desire is a real relationship with your people. If there's anyone here who has never, never entered into that relationship, I pray right now, Jesus, that you would give them courage to do so, to say, I don't know what it means, but I wanna follow you, Jesus. I want, I want more of this love, of this grace. And Lord, I pray for, for us at Hope Brooklyn, for the ways that we have fallen short, for the ways that we have forgotten you. I pray that we confess that knowing that you will forgive us. I pray that you would make this space and this family a place where the new family is so clearly manifested that people look at us and say, there's something different about the way we treat one another, about the way our friendships interact, about the way our relationships are seen. There's something different. It's, it's, it's remarkable. It's a love that isn't clearly seen outside these walls. Would you create that? Because only you can do it, Lord. We love you, Jesus. We need you. As we enter into this, this next song, would you just speak to our hearts? Would you convict us? And would you speak your words of truth and of love, asking us to lay down those things we hold so tightly to because that's what you did. Be with us, Lord. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.